Archaeology is often viewed as a fascinating, eclectic, and ultimately quaint pursuit. This program explores archaeology from the perspective of professionals who demonstrate that in the 21st century, archaeology and its sub-disciplines may hold the key, not only to our past, but to our present and future. Welcome to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with your host, Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Spend the next hour exploring where we came from and where we're headed with a leading researcher and practitioner in the field. Now, here is Dr. Schuldenrein. Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to this episode of Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. We have been discussing a number of very practical and uh, related topics in the past few weeks, and uh, in many cases, we are trying to uh, establish the connection between archaeology and more recent developments and their applications to studies that relate to the 20th century, even the 21st century, when we get into aspects of forensic archaeology and the archaeology of cities in recent development. One of the topics that we are going to begin to address as one of the more sobering topics in which archaeology has recently extended itself into, and that is the archaeology of genocide and the archaeology of mass murder. Unfortunately, this is a phenomenon that has not gone away, and as everybody knows, uh, the most horrific event of the 20th century was, of course, the Holocaust, and archaeological research in the Holocaust is relatively recent. In fact, the event itself, of course, is relatively recent and still remains within the memory of uh, individuals who survived the experience and are now starting to fade away and pass away. But uh, one of the issues that we would like to address and one of the novel uh, research elements in arc forensic archaeology is the archaeology of the Holocaust. And there are numerous major questions that must be addressed with respect to this theme. Uh, for example, what is it going to tell us given the fact that we know so much about it, there's so much documentation, there's so much information about it, that aside from a uh, limited but not insignificant group of Holocaust deniers, uh, it has been largely established as a fact. And the extent and the details of much of the uh, aspects of the Holocaust are reasonably well documented, very well documented in many ways. And yet the material culture, the structure of the camps themselves, the concentration camps and the extermination camps is not really all that well known. And with me today to discuss the uh, developments in Holocaust archaeology, if you will, is a leading expert in the field, and I'm speaking about uh, Dr. Isaac Gilad. Uh, Isaac Gilad is a professor of archaeology at Ben-Gurion University of the Negev in Beersheba, Israel. Uh, Dr. Gilad received his degrees from the Hebrew University. He received his Ph.D. in 1982. His research interests include the archaeology of Beersheba, which is the city in which he's based, the Stone Age archaeology of the southern Levant, archaeology of arid zones, archaeology of the Chalcolithic period, and most recently, as we will be discussing in the next hour, the archaeology of Nazi extermination centers. And uh, Dr. Gilad is also uh, especially focused on spatial analysis, uh, geographic information systems, and their application to archaeological research. As I indicated, he has worked in Nazi extermination centers in Poland and specifically at the camps of Belzec, uh, Sobibor, and Treblinka. It is my pleasure and honor to welcome to the program Dr. Isaac Gilad. Isaac, thank you so much for appearing here. Thank you for the kind introduction. Uh, Isaac, I would like Dr. Gilad, actually, let's, let's go a little bit formal here. Why don't you give us a little bit of background into uh, Holocaust archaeology, extermination center archaeology, and what you've been doing and how you got involved in this project to begin with? <clears throat> okay. Uh, first, you uh, you mentioned, and I think it's important to stress the uh, combination extermination center. And we're not talking here about the so-called uh, concentration center, although many uh, in many cases they are mixed. 
So I'll start with uh, defining, let's say, the uh, the subject matter of uh, our discussion. During the first half of 1942, the Nazis constructed three extermination centers in eastern Poland. First was the uh, uh, center called Belgius, then Sobibor, and later Treblinka. Uh, to these camps, Jews were transported. It's worth noting that almost only Jews, but a few uh, gypsies and others uh, were uh, transported too. They were transported mainly by trains, and they were murdered in gas chambers about a couple of, of hours after they arrived by a mono, monocarbon asphyxiation. It is estimated that about... 1.5 million Jews were exterminated between 1942 and the fall of 1943, and uh, this is uh, this number of Jews is even higher than the Jews exterminated in Auschwitz. Uh, in October, in August and October 1943, there were revolts in two camps: first in Treblinka and then in Sobibor. And they were partially successful since dozens of people there, about, about more than 100 people from both cent- extermination centers survived the war. So they're an important source for uh, knowing what happened. So this is the extermination centers. Now, it is worth noting that, let's speak in archaeological terms, right, in terms of spatial analysis, typology. So uh, this uh, term, extermination center, implies bringing Jews and immediately killing them on arrival. This is different (coughs) than probably the better known extermination center of Auschwitz, for example, or Majdanek, that were both extermination centers and concentration centers. In a concentration center, especially Majdanek and Auschwitz, a forced labor or slave labor was used and hundreds of thousands of inmates were brought into these places to work. In addition to that, extermination was carried out in these places too. So after the war terminated, since Auschwitz and Majdanek, Auschwitz-Birkenau and Majdanek were uh, also concentration centers and people toiled there, the Germans practically left the places, the barracks where the people live, as they are. So today you can go to Auschwitz or to uh, Majdanek and see barracks and see artifacts that are there. The three extermination centers, to differentiate between extermination and concentration center, the three extermination centers were uh, obliterated explicitly by plan in 1943. So if you go to these places, nothing is left there. So in other words, there was a deliberate destruction so that the evidence for what happened would essentially be completely covered up and there would be no material remains to give any indications of what happened, correct? Yes, and this is, as, as we know as archaeologists, a very essential point to remember because uh, it is expected that we will find, the, at least in terms of structures, nothing. For example, one of the most uh, common uh, archaeological elements or my material elements of these places where the barracks where uh, the, uh, the slave workers live. Now, this was taken apart and simply moved to other places. And all the other structures, for example, we have a, an exact description uh, that the gas chambers were, uh, were blasted. Other sources say that they were taken apart brick by brick. So the idea and, was leave right. nothing behind. And the sources for this were what exactly? The sources for the uh, for obliterating the camps. Right. 
first of all, we know that the, the Germans, in terms of uh, in terms of sources, we know that the Germans were very strict about keeping secrecy of what was going on. These were places that hundreds of people walked, uh, were active during a year and a half. And for example, from Sobibor, about two or three snapshots remain. And nothing of the snapshots is uh, can tell you much of what was going there. So first of all, it's the secrecy. Second, we have exact uh, orders, and we have, of course, both, the, or especially the evidence of the, or the testimonies of the German SS men that were on the camps and describe exactly how they took them apart. I see. Uh, we will come back and speak with Dr. Gilad in greater detail about the uh, information that he has recovered and the work that he has undertaken, as well as some of the background to archaeological research at the extermination centers after these words. Please stay with us. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Are you a homeowner who's trying to save on energy bills and go green at the same time? Tune into Energy Saving in the Home, brought to you by 521 Compressor Saver and Home Energy Consultants with host Gary Parr and Dennis Seltzer. They have saved homeowners just like you as much as 65% on energy bills through energy efficiency practices. You'll learn about conservation, products, and services to reduce energy consumption and save you money. Be sure to listen to Energy Saving in the Home, live every Saturday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time, on the Voice America Variety Channel. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. We all want to be happy, but consider that conventional thinking is what got us where we are now. The good news is there's so much more to know that can give us a new and higher perspective. Tune in to A New View of Life with host Kathy Kirk as we unlock the conversational gridlock in America by exploring new ideas and new information on every aspect of life which is needed to move us not just forward, but upward. A New View of Life airs live every Tuesday at 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Listening to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to joseph.schuldenrein at gra-goarc.com. Now, back to the program. Welcome back to our program. This is uh, Joe Schuldenrein uh, on uh, Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. And uh, one of the topics that is very becoming very, very prominent in archaeological circles is uh, the investigations of genocide. And, of course, as a groundbreaking element in this form of study, we uh, look, of course, to the Holocaust as being the most uh, glaring example of mass genocide of genocide in in recent in memory in history and i am discussing aspects of holocaust archaeology with uh one of the world's experts dr isaac gilad of ben-gurion university in israel 
Uh, Dr. Gilad enlightened us on the differences between concentration camps and extermination centers and the fact that extermination centers were explicitly designed to leave no record of evidence of absolute destruction and extermination of a particular uh, people, in this case, of course, the Jews. And he elucidated how the mass destruction was simply a function of having no real facilities at this camp other than was that what was absolutely necessary for killing people, as opposed to, say, concentration camps, which were ostensibly work centers. Of course, they also functioned as, extens- as extermination centers, but certainly not exclusively. And what I'd like to proceed with at this particular point is how Dr. Gillard got involved in this study and also to ask him a little bit about the history of Holocaust studies. So let's start, uh, Dr. Gillard, with your own involvement in this, your personal connection and your academic connection to this form of study. Please uh, uh, let us in on that, if you would. Yes. Uh, I'm the son of uh, Jewish-Polish parents. Uh, they were born and lived and grew up and married in Poland in a township north of uh, Warsaw called Muava, Umlava. Uh, and uh, a couple of months after the uh, beginning of the war, after the Nazis invaded Poland, uh, they were wise enough to escape to the uh, USSR, first to Kiev and then further to the Asiatic part of Russia. And uh, my father, by the way, was drafted to the, uh, to the Red Army and, and went back to Germany as a soldier. So uh, basically my parents survived and they were not victims or they were not affected personally in the uh, concentration or extermination center. However, dozens of other members of the family, uh, for example, grandparents, grandmothers, uh, uncles, uh, aunts, cousins, etc., dozens of people of my family were exterminated, most of them probably since they were near Warsaw, were exterminated at Treblinka. Uh, but my parents were, uh, it was quite common then, or in many houses uh, in Israel, people didn't talk about it. So all of what I know about the Holocaust came basically from school, from reading. I was uh, a very heavy reader for this aspect, and it was a kind of, uh, it is an interesting uh, issue and be- I, therefore I read it. It's not because I was, in, I mean, that my family was involved in it anyway. And that's why when I uh, went to uh, to the university and I was interested in the ancient world, in history, so I studied archaeology and as you mentioned uh, at the beginning of the talk, I'm doing usually prehistory. However, in 2006, one of the students at our department, Mr. Yoram Chaimi, asked me to uh, supervise a PhD, a proposed PhD, that will uh, deal with digging the uh, extermination center of Sobibor. Again, one of these in Eastern Poland. Let me ask you, Isaac, at this particular point, did you, before that time, did you have any desire, any interest in doing this, or was this what really stimulated your your interest and and that's what motivated you to pursue this? No, basically I was was doing prehistoric archaeology, and uh, you see my PhD uh, study is... uh, of the upper Paleolithic periods, which means 20 or 30,000 years ago in, right. in southern Levant. And I, then I became more modern. I studied, let's say, the archaeology of 6,000 years ago. That's using the recent years. But no, I was not uh, planning to go into it. Um, so, but this uh, suggestion uh, to supervise a PhD, uh, kind of uh, ignited me. Uh-huh. So I went into this. 
Uh, I did it by, <coughs> first of all, going to the field for a number of seasons. Uh, so I had first-hand experience of being in such a place, digging, excavating it, seeing what comes out, what are the problems, what are the prospects. Uh, I read the literature concerning the Archaeology Extermination Center. I studied it. And of course, I went to see from, how to call it, from an archaeological point of view, the other extermination centers, uh, namely Treblinka, uh, Belgium, another one, another extermination center, not mentioned, but uh, maybe we'll mention it soon, is Helmino in Western Poland. Uh, so I think uh, I was, I became quite involved in this aspect of archaeology. And so when you first went to Poland, did you feel anything? Did you have any, what was it like when you, when you first stepped down and you started to, to examine the, uh, the situation, to look at the camps and, uh, how did that, how did you feel as, as a child of survivors? I must tell you, maybe it is uh, unfortunate. I don't know, but, uh, my personal, uh, I, I, treated the places, or I looked at the places as sites. Unfortunately, maybe I cannot uh, connect myself. Uh, being so far removed from these events, I cannot connect myself uh, from the point of view of feelings to, uh, to, to, to the soil, to the, uh, to the remains, to structures. So uh, when I go to Maidanik, for example, that you see structures are standing there, it is impressive. But I still look and say, ah, look at the, at the roofs. They are covered with tar. It is of importance because tar has relevance. I mean, tar paper, you know, to protect it from. So this is, this is the way I look at it. I try to be as, uh, quote, unquote, neutral as possible. Right. In other words, there was a disconnect of some sort. Yeah, maybe it's the years, maybe it's the fact that I never knew people that were, I mean, I never met a grandfather. I, I was born a couple of years after the war, so, and my parents never talked about them. So for me, it was natural. And by the way, many of the youngsters, many of the kids at my school, it was the same. So not having grandparents uh, was quite common. So, so I, I, I cannot be personally uh, associated or attached to these places. Right. And so, so it's just professionally. Right. So once you arrived there, and you had obviously you had to do uh, a certain amount of coordination with the Polish government, and I'm curious as to how they reacted to an Israeli archaeologist coming into Poland, which obviously has such a strong connection and such a strong, uh, not necessarily positive connection to the Nazi uh, period. How did they respond to your research interests and to the fact that you were coming into their terrain, as it were, and you were going to uh, do that kind of work? How did they respond to it? I think uh, it should be uh, looked in a dramatic way because, you see, the Poles, and maybe we'll come soon to it when, the, when, when we describe that archaeology already carried out, the Poles excavated uh, these places. For example, Helmeno, they excavated already in 1986. So the, the, the basic idea of carrying out an archaeological dig in a site was not something new to the Polish. However, in terms of, uh, they were interested in cooperation uh, because, uh, because of getting more, uh, being, making the work more known uh, resources because you know archaeology, we know that archaeology is a very expensive, uh, it's very expensive project. Uh, however, the, the basic idea from the administrative point of view is that we are digging on Polish soil, so the, the, the dig, the expedition, 
is running under Polish permission and Polish archaeologists are involved and the artifacts stay in Poland, etc., etc. So it's so, not an Israeli dig of Sobibor. It's an Israeli-Polish, Polish-Israeli. So it was a joint cooperative venture. Yes, and uh, it is uh, worth noting the, uh, mentioning the uh, participants of the venture. First and foremost, it's Ben-Gurion University of the Negev, which you mentioned. And uh, uh, it started with us, and even the initial budget was kindly uh, given by the president of our university, Professor Rivka Kami, that could start the project at all, the pro- the, 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 the Polish people were interested to work with us, but there were no resources. So Ben-Gurion University uh, started actually the a project and even supplied resources. And this was in cooperation with Yad Vashem, that's the Israeli side, and the Polish side is uh, uh, the Museum of Wadava and its branch at Sobibor. Wadava is a township adjacent to Sobibor. So this is in terms of the project and the uh, cooperation between the teams. And on that note, we're going to take yet another break. And when we come back, we will talk to Dr. Gilad in, in greater detail about the actual archaeological excavations set against a background of previous research that was undertaken by the Poles and by other teams. And we will be back with that discussion after these words. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Voice America Variety Channel presents a program like no other for those in the field and interested in the field of security and training. On America's front lines of crime and war with Victory Defense Consulting, hosted by J.J. Sutton. Here, listeners are learning about tactical skills and practices that support efficient, smarter, and more enduring skills. You will receive the most up-to-date information about the security and training industry with detailed discussions and select special guests each week. Tune in to On America's Front Lines of Crime and War, Fridays at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Michelle Core Six Degrees is your connected consciousness. Six Degrees is what comes around, goes around radio. Committed to delivering a fresh perspective on thought-provoking, investigative information that can change your life. Six Degrees connects you to the social and emotional scene and is your trusted advisor from finance to romance, mainstream to metaphysical. It's a positive, upbeat look at life, love, and the pursuit of passion. Get connected Saturdays at 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Variety Channel. Tune in to the Hoffman Connection for inspiration, a life of passion and purpose. Hosts Raz and Grossi and Ed McLoon will bring you ways to remove the blocks in your life that are holding you back. Along with their guest experts, Raz and Ed will use their experience and expertise to help you learn to get closer to what matters to you most. And by doing so, improve your life and the lives of others. The Hoffman Connection can be heard live every Tuesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. Listening to Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. Or send an email to joseph.schuldenrein at gra goarc.com. Now, back to the program. This is Joe Schildenrein, and we're back with Dr. Isaac Gilad of uh, Ben-Gurion University of the Negev and in uh, Beersheba, Israel. And we are talking about uh, Dr. Gilad's excavations 
at the Nazi extermination center of Sobibor. And uh, the greater topic, of course, is uh, the archaeology of the Holocaust. And I would like to ask Dr. Gilad at this point to get into some of the background on archaeological excavations at the extermination centers of Poland and Eastern Europe generally and uh, as a, a backdrop to the work that he has undertaken at Sobibor. So, Dr. Gilad, please tell us a little bit about the history of archaeological excavation and how it affected and impacted the work that you did. Yes, I would limit myself, as you say, to the excavation of the extermination centers, because as we started uh, saying that uh, they are most important because there is nothing left, so the only archaeology can uh, can recover something from such a place, from such places. A uh, critical point, yes, that's true, right? Yes. Uh, the first uh, site that was excavated, the first extermination center was Hemeno. Hemeno is in western Poland and it was excavated since 1986 by uh, people from the uh, Museum, uh, led by an archaeologist. Uh, led by an archaeologist, Lucia Pavlitschka Novak, uh, and uh, thousands of, uh, of artifacts came out, and even some fragments of uh, structures uh, were, uh, were uncovered. This is the first place. The second excavation, uh, extermination center was, that was excavated was Belgium. It was excavated in the late 1990s, and here, a Polish archaeologist called Andrei Korla uh, uh, adapted a very interesting matter. Uh, most of what he did in the site is drilling. As a geoarchaeologist, you probably know this method. Yeah, we call we call we call it coring. Coring, exactly. So they cored uh, with, the, if I'm not mistaken, a 65 millimeters core. And they caught every five meters, and they came out during the first season or two with more than 2,000 uh, calls. And they uh, established the, uh, the spread of the so-called of the burial pits. You know that the Nazis, first of all, they tried to bury the, uh, the victims. But since it was very problematic and I don't have the time to go into details, they started at a certain stage to burn them. So they had to bury the ashes. So by drilling, the archaeologist could more or less draw the contours of the piece. And he also found uh, a couple of structures, one of which he called, or one of which he uh, attributed or uh, defined as a gas chamber. So this is Belgium. And the third extermination center that was excavated was Sobibor. Again, in the in 2000 and 2001, Kola did the same. He drilled and excavated a couple of features. So more or less, he could draw up the contours of the place. This is the situation at Sobibor uh, before we came. Uh, our idea was not to drill. Uh, one of the reasons is that we try to keep distance from the huge burial pits. And you did that because of what? Why did you because, do that? Because of many reasons. One of the reasons are uh, sentiments of, uh, let's say, uh, first and foremost, uh, many Jews, that you should not, uh, big burials, you know, it's uh, it's a very problematic and serious issue in Israel. It's a sensitive, uh, it's, uh, sensitive issue, very much so. Everywhere, yes, everywhere, also in the in the United States. Uh, so uh, uh, our basic approach was: we do not touch it. We have the contours. We use the uh, we use the uh, GPR, etc. Just to see what can be learned on these burial pits, not from actually excavating them, but from sensing them, let's say, from the distance, from the air, to photographs of them, etc., etc. So, since we are not since we are not excavating pits, we were excavating. We could 
open uh, uh, squares for excavation. And uh, naturally, we looked for the place that was the core, the black hole of these extermination centers, and this is the gas chamber, or the gas chambers. There were, uh, it was a set of gas chambers. And as I mentioned before, in uh, Belgium, Kola claimed that he found the gas chambers, and we tried to do the same in Sobibor. So we're excavating parts of the camp where the gas chambers were supposed to be found. And until now, there is no clear-cut evidence that uh, in a certain area uh, we found, for example, remains that can be attributed to gas chambers. So let me let me ask you another question. A couple of questions here, uh, Itzik, that I, I want to get some clarification on. First of all, you're talking about the background that was of the research that had been done that led to your work, and basically you're telling us that it was Polish teams that did this work. And if I'm not mistaken, I would assume that their results were were they published in English or published simply in Polish? And and what kind of circulation did the results of those previous works have? in the general archaeological community? Not very much, I would assume. Uh, first of all, Kola published uh, the Sobibor results are not published yet, excluding a description of a couple of pages with a plan that was published, I think, in 2001 in a, in a Polish journal. Uh, Belgets was published not in a, in a, in a journal. There is a little volume, most of the people are not aware of it. So if you go, for example, to, uh, uh, to the museum at Belgets, you can buy it. But it is not a common literature. In, in our library, I doubt if it is in one of the Israeli libraries or it is, uh, it is not common. So, in other words, until your work, I mean, the the, uh, the research that's been done on the extermination centers is just basically not widely circulated at all. Yes, this is one. Uh, this is one of the reasons that we, uh, a short while after two seasons in the field, uh, we decided uh, to go public and uh, we summarized uh, the main results of uh, the Polish teams. Uh, and the preliminary results of our work, and we published it in English in an internet journal called uh, Present Pasts. The first issue was published in 2009, and the first article of the first issue is uh, is our journal that is sorry, our paper that is excavating Nazi, Nazi extermination centers. What we are talking about. So, if the read or if the listeners are interested in details, it's very it's available online. Look for present pasts, and it's then you'll see a summary of what I'm uh, talking to you. I would uh, advise all listeners really uh, to look at this paper as being, at this point in time, the seminal paper on. Uh, the excavation of the Nazi extermination centers. It is replete with photographs, illustrations, maps, and the type of documentation that is really at this point state-of-the-art archaeology. So uh, please, if you have the ability uh, to go on the Internet, uh, please take a look at this piece. It is, it is really state-of-the-art at this point. But having said that, um, let me ask you, were there no maps of Sobibor at all that you could get your hands on? Uh, on the contrary, there are too many maps. Aha. Uh-huh. Uh, but uh, each map has its problem. For example, since we said that uh, it was a secret, right? no really or not original, there are no original documents relating to some of the most basic aspects of such places, such as what was the plan that the uh, SS people that built these centers used. We are sure that there are plans because Franz uh, Stangl, the, the, the commandant of both Sobibor and later Treblinka, 
uh, in his account tells very clearly that he sat in Lublin with uh, Odilo Globochny, which was the big man of, this, uh, of these three camps, and he showed him the plans of Shobibor. So the original, nothing was left, or maybe it will be found. Then we have two kinds of maps. First, the uh, maps based on the testimonies of uh, the survivors, and there is one uh, major map that is based on the testimony of one of the SS people. We will discuss the results of his investigation, and we'll be back after these words. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com Tune into Around the World in a Glass, presented by Sportsman's. We're a show all about wine, spirits, and other beverages. Your host, Kimber Stonehouse, is a professional expert and wine enthusiast. Each week, we'll focus on a different region of the world, discuss wines and other beverages, talk about some of the top restaurants in the region, and what to pair with which wine. Just listening could make you almost an expert. Around the World in a Glass is heard live every Wednesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Are you a single parent trying to create the balance between home life and work life? You may be running a successful business, but how are your relationships with your family and children? If you're one of the thousands of people trying to juggle it all, tune in to Straight Up with Chris, real talk on business and parenthood, hosted by Chris FSU. Chris is the portrait of the success story. Coming to the U.S. with no language skills, founding and growing several businesses, while raising his daughter from age 7 to adulthood as a single dad. Listen every Thursday at 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific on Voice America Variety. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com listening to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to joseph.schuldenrein at gra-goarc.com. Now, back to the program. Hi, we're back. We are talking to uh, Dr. Isaac Gilad of Ben-Gurion University of the Negev about his excavations at Sobibor. And in this final segment, uh, Itzik, I'd like to ask you to cut to the chase here and to describe what information was yielded and produced from your several seasons of excavation. From the point of view of uh, structures, uh, the yield is not very rich because of the simple reason, and we started the program by discussing it, that everything was dismantled, taking about, uh, eliminated. However, you find, for example, uh, we found cost holes, which means we can draw the lines of uh, fences. Uh, there is evidence that the road leading from the place where uh, the Jews disembarked and were driven to the gas chambers, uh, there is evidence that the, uh, the road as described by the Nazis and by the survivors, uh, it is obvious on the area. I mean, you, you, you can more or less see it. This is from the point of view of, uh, of structures. But what is, I think, maybe uh, more important is that uh, these excavations, excluding ours, produced thousands and thousands of artifacts. 
No, these are these artifacts. You see, when you ask me if I go to, if, what what am I feeling going to these places? And I said, told you that uh, I, I look at, at them as in the eyes of, of archaeologists. But when you come to the artifacts, it is different. Because in the artifacts, you feel the people. And the artifacts are very clear artifacts of uh, Jews from all over Europe. For example, you find in such a place uh, bottles that were brought from the Netherlands. About 30,000 Jews were uh, from the Netherlands were exterminated in uh, Sobibor. Uh, you have uh, all kinds of insignia of, uh, for example, a little uh, uh, kind of a pendant of uh, uh, of Moses. Uh, not not necessarily in Shabibo, but in the extermination center. So you right. have maybe from the point of view of artifact, the very real feeling that it was a center. People were brought from France. You find French evidence. People were brought from uh, the Netherlands. You find Netherlands artifacts. People uh, were brought from uh, uh, Slovakia. You find artifacts that indicate the uh, the fact that it is a center that it kind of people were channeled to this place, but unfortunately they were exterminated. Uh, and this is also important from another point of view, and this is also related to archaeology. These places are being heavily vandalized, and people are nowadays uh, thieves of such sites are looking, of course, for gold, but. Uh, they take everything of uh, value they find. So if the archaeologists will not carry out the research and quote-unquote save these artifacts, uh, they'll be lost forever. And there's no protection, there's no formal site declaration that this is a, a place that is, in a sense, a holy place or a, a sacred place in many, many ways? Or is it simply that the Polish government doesn't have the resources to guard it or to preserve it uh, while you're not ex- excavating and, and while nothing is going on? Uh, have you discussed this with the, with the government or what's the situation there? It depends. You cannot be, uh, you cannot generalize. For example, Belgex has turned in the last six or seven years into a fence, very impressive monument and museum. So you actually cannot enter the site. By the way, even when you enter, you cannot find things there because it was changed in order to turn the entire site into the monument. That's on one edge. Belgians closed, protected. And another part is Sobibor. Sobibor is kind of a natural park. It's, it's in a, in a, in a, an area of people vacate in this part of Poland. Not in Sobibor, of course, but. Mm-hmm. So people come and, and it's not fenced. It's not protected. Uh, Treblinka, for example, is more protected, but still it is not fenced and people can come. And I, I doubt if it can be kept. Uh, around the clock. So the best uh, solution, and uh, it is advancing towards this, for example, is to turn such places into monuments like Belgium. So there is a plan now uh, that is practically materializing to turn Sobibor into such a place. So the entire uh, terrain uh, will turn into a state uh, museum and by the way, that's not the situation now. Now it's a local museum, and the state is practically not responsible. The the the, the, the local government is responsible. So I think in the next coming in the coming years things will change, and the the the, the, uh, the Polish people are aware about it, and I think they take uh, uh, they take actions in order to uh, protect better these places. Although for the time being, at least uh, in uh, a couple of years ago, we came to the field and we saw that a night or two before we came, someone probably with a, with a detector dug in places. We do not know what he took, but we saw the, 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 the earth he turned and what he left behind. So people are coming there. 
uh, until until now to look for uh, artifacts. In the in this, <clears throat> we have only one minute left. It's a, and I just want to get your perspective and overview of the contribution that archaeology can make to our understanding of the Holocaust and genocide in general. Uh, what is the message that, that, that we can uh, spring forth for the listenership? What is archaeology giving us and, and what kind of information are we getting? I mean, obviously, uh, the recognition of the sanctity of the place and, and the need to protect this as a monument, to some degree, that was encouraged by the archaeology. Uh, what else would you like to close with? Uh, I think that, uh, and here maybe I can turn back to the artifacts. I think that uh, the archaeology can, with its artifact and with uh, uh, showing its artifact in museums, etc., can uh, create a direct contact between people and the event. Because if you read uh, history books, uh, it, it is so it is so horrible, so unbelievable, and in many. Uh, aspects so far removed from the regular life that uh, it is hard to grasp it. When you come and see the artifacts, uh, the, the people behind the artifacts, you can imagine the people behind the artifacts. So I think uh, that this is a, a very important uh, contribution we can make. Uh, and we can go into details. You know, one of the famous historians uh, of the Holocaust said, every fact counts. I think it's Raoul Hilberg who said it. So every right. fact counts, and we are collecting the facts, yes. That's part of the work of archaeology, to collect facts. And on that note, I'm afraid we're going to have to end the program. I want to express my deepest appreciation to Dr. Isaac Gilad of the uh, Ben-Gurion University of the Negev in Israel. I really appreciate your participation in the program. And uh, we will have another show for you next week. And until that time, uh, stay well and stay tuned and be aware. Thank you so much. This is Joe Schuldenrein. Good night and see you later. Thank you. Thanks again for tuning in to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Please join us for another unique journey into the past next Wednesday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. In the meantime, think about the past with an eye towards the future and a better tomorrow. Tomorrow.